Restaurant Unstoppable episode 655 with Robert Thompson. Um, I just remind myself what the world looked like um, from the angle of picking my teeth up off the floor. Are you ready for it? Factors, success stories, failures, and bombs of restaurant industry knowledge? Then, join Eric Cacciatore and today's incredible guest as they share what it takes to become unstoppable. Were you aware that 89% of guests will research a restaurant online before dining out? This is why it is so important for you to be mindful of what your online presence is. Visit getbento.com slash unstoppable to sign up for your Bento Box website today. Bento Box empowers restaurants to own their presence, profits, and relationships online. One more time, that is getbento.com slash unstoppable. Everybody loves payday, am I right? But loving your payroll provider, that's a different story. It's a little weird. Still, small businesses across the country love running payroll with Gusto. Gusto automatically files and pays your taxes. It's super easy to use, and you can add benefits and HR support to help take care of your team and keep your business safe. It's loyal, it's modern, and who knows, you might even fall in love. To learn more, head over to gusto.com slash Unstoppable, And when you run your first payroll, you'll get your first three months free. Again, that's gusto.com slash unstoppable. For years, restaurant owners have been pleading for more integration in their restaurants, and they finally got it. Restaurant 365 is a cloud-based, all-in-one, restaurant-specific accounting and back-office platform that seamlessly integrates with POS systems, payroll providers, and food and beverage vendors. Head over to restaurant365.com slash unstoppable and qualify for 30% off implementation and a free inventory build in Restaurant 365 a value of $5,000. And with excitement, allow me to introduce to you today's guest, Robert Thompson. My man, Robert, are you feeling unstoppable today? I have not found a hill that I can't (laughs) topple yet. (laughs) Awesome. So over the last two decades, Robert Thompson has opened more than a dozen restaurant concepts, uh, experiencing a number of successes and a few failures. At one point, Thompson was ready to get out of the restaurant industry completely. However, his irrational stubbornness had other thoughts. Thompson decided to give everything he had personally and financially to develop a new dining and entertainment experience in 2012 Punch Bowl social a multifaceted surprisingly intimate social gaming in and a dining space was born as of today punchbowl social consists of 19 locations with an additional six laid to open in the next 14 months man i cannot wait to dive into your story to find out how you how you got to this point and to find out what it's like currently managing all these different things if it's gotten easier if it's gotten harder i don't know what we're going to discuss i cannot wait but let's get that motivational inspirational ball rolling with a success quote or a mantra is there one that you can think of to, to get the ball rolling yeah you know, I, I you know we, we could borrow a lot of quotes but um probably from a, a mantra perspective you know i borrow um I, I borrow from something you know i read about steve jobs a long time ago um which was you know if this was your last day on earth what would you do mm. And uh, I think about that a lot. How, just, how does that influence you? How does that? It it, you? it helps. Um, 
a, a lot of the successes, you know, um, relatively speaking, uh, of, of uh, your definitions of success, um, for me, have come from not being afraid um, to uh, knock on a door, from not being afraid to face down a challenge. And, um, you know, if it's your last day on earth, you're not afraid of anything. Yeah. I'm curious, has your definition of success changed over the past since 2012, what, seven years? Since, since you've experienced more su- success, uh, on paper at least, um, has your perspective of success changed? No, and I'm not there. Okay. So, you know, we can do this interview when I'm actually successful. Okay. Well, you're welcome back anytime. So where does it make sense to start telling your story? When did you really start to get enveloped in the restaurant industry? So, you know, I, like a lot of folks, I started in the industry when I was a kid, you know, 16 years old, started busting tables and then, um, you know, was waiting tables and bartending and uh, some restaurants back, uh, back East in DC. Okay. Um, iconic you know, East Coast concept called uh, Clyde's, okay, uh, which is really where I sort of made my restaurant bones. Um, but uh, you know, became an entrepreneur though uh, when I was 25. So from 16 to 25, uh, I you know just spent my time in the ranks, um, waiting tables, bartending, got into management, and then when I was 25, I decided um, that uh, I, I just had this burning. Uh, desire to get out and do it myself. Okay. Um, so I want to, when, when I'm listening to my guest story, I like to hover over certain areas. Clyde's, we can't just look over it. I know it was probably, you know, your first experience. You didn't, weren't really developed at Clyde's, but Clyde's is a staple in mm. the American dining experience, totally. especially in DC. What do you remember about Clyde's? Uh, what kind of impression did that, that level of dining, that level of service make on you at such a young age? It's funny you ask that because it occurs to me that, um, with the question you just asked me about success, uh, I can tie um, uh, what I uh, what you know I subconsciously learned at at Clyde's and um, to w- what my ultimate definition of professional success is. Um, and Clyde's um, helped me develop a sense um, of icon. A sense of icon. What do you mean by that? It, it is. It's an iconic brand. It's bigger than all of its parts. Mm. You know, and it's not really across the national landscape. But in its uh, in its arena, you know, back east, you know, mostly centered around uh, the you know greater DC, um, it you know it's uh, it, it's it's omnipresent or it it's uh, it means so much uh, in the culture uh, back there, and it it's defined you know hundreds of thousands of employees' lives, right? That came out of that institution, and it truly is an institution. Yeah. Um, how does a brand grow? beyond its parts what are the, th- the key things that you think a brand has to do to be bigger than itself well for my brand <laughs> um i i can answer for mine um which is you know we are are we talk every day about getting into the restaurant hall of fame we want to deserve to be there this this sort of you know this fictional valhalla of of restaurants uh and um to do that you know you have to inch your way towards iconic Status, or you have to think about yourself uh, with um, with iconic status as a goal. We also want to transcend the restaurant industry. You know, we will um, transport ourselves um, incrementally into more of a lifestyle brand for our core millennial and Gen Z audience. And uh, as we do that, we will, you know, so we're not only the the category leader within this nascent um, entertainment or experiential food and beverage space, but we are also evolving our brand product recognition with our core consumer into lifestyle status. 
Okay. So you're, you're, you're basically interweaving the iconic brand into like you're, you're writing it into your business. It's something that you've, you've wanted to be from day one and you've tried to, how do you implement an iconic sense into a, a new business? How do, how do you do that? Well, when, when you are um, from a, from a lifestyle perspective, right? When you, uh, when you become um, the essence or a key component to the lifestyle of your key consumers, right? You're, you are, you're halfway there, right? So we are getting beyond just the restaurant space. We're part of the way they live their lives. We know the millennials and Gen Z um, uh, make so many decisions based on experiences with respect to how they consume in the modern economy. There's an experiential economy now. Not enough people talk about separately about there being an experiential economy. And we are right there um, at the epicenter of the experiential economy. So our, our, our guests, um, you know, recognize us and we want them to do, they, they treat us uh, as a lifestyle, but we actually want to help them understand a little better that we are, you know, us as a brand are part of that lifestyle. So we want the recognition with them, not just the activity. Okay. I, I took some notes. I'm going to pull back some layers on this as we get to that <laughs> point. We're getting a little too it's far. It's a complicated into- <laughs> topic. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm interested though. It's a great way to get this thing started. Um, so you, you mentioned um, you spent some time in Europe. Uh, you're 18 years old. You came back to the States. Hmm. I think part of the story was that you, you uh, got a truck and you moved to Denver. Um, Anything we're missing? Anything that's key in your story up to that point, or anything? Is that accurate? Yeah. So I, you know, I bought a one-way um, when I was eighteen. I bought a one-way ticket to um, to Europe and backpacked around for three months, and um, didn't have you know enough money to to get home, um, or frankly eat very well. <laughs> so <laughs> it's one way to lose weight. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I, I was a, I was a skinny kid when I got back. Um, the uh, the the best option I had was to um, get on a boat and cross the English Channel and get a job in a in a pub bartending in London and a really shitty shitty part of town and um, this made, is after your Clyde's experience right this is after Clyde's yeah, yeah. yeah. so um, and I came um, back to DC which is where I had left all my belongings um, which is where I lived of course when I worked at Clyde's and. Um, you know, I could have spent a thousand dollars on renting a truck, or I could have spent a thousand dollars on buying a truck. And uh, and so I bought a truck. I drove it to Denver, which is where I started school, and um, then started a moving company with that truck instead. Yeah. Of- so this is kind of where your entrepreneurial journey kicks off. That's um, right. Is it worth spending time talking about this first business, or do we want to skim right over it? Go to any lessons learned. I, I think it's. I think there's a um, there's a pin in that moment, right on the on the chronology. But you know, it is what it is, right? There, you know, you, we could talk about it, but the summary will probably be the <laughs> entrepreneurial instincts were there. Okay, awesome. So, how did this evolve into getting back into the restaurant industry? Um, well, you know, I. I, I was in college and working, you know, restaurant gigs uh, here in Denver. You know, at that time and. Um, the, um, uh, you know, just like everybody else, right? That's just how you make your daily bread and go to school yeah. and work all night. And, um, th- that's just part of the grind. And then I ended up moving back, um, to DC again, okay. right? I missed DC, went back there. And, um, that's, um, after working in DC for a few more years, um, that's when, um, sort of the, um, the, the restaurateur as it relates to be an entrepreneur, started to leak out okay and once it started leaking i, I couldn't I, I couldn't hold it back so what year is this 95 when you go back to better rock management in dc is it was that in dc or is that that's back right in, okay so um this is you know 
95, are you thinking like, I want to do this as a career? I want to be in hospitality full time. Like, were you committed at this point or were you just still trying to find a job? Yeah, no, none of us were, um, you know, none of us as, um, uh, in the restaurant industry think we're, think we're (laughs) in the restaurant industry for the long run. Right. (laughs) Right. There's, I've never met another human that said, yeah, I I knew from day one I was going to be in this industry (laughs) until I retired. Um, no, it's funny. Even when I uh, even when I started my first business in 1997 in Nashville, Tennessee, I didn't. Um, I still always thought that I was going to, um, you know, put my uh, my study in philosophy and uh, and history to uh, to work as a as a fiction writer. And uh, and this was still going to be just a means to an end. It's only really maybe in the last decade. Hey, that you're I went, still young. You can still make it happen. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, that, that's actually still the goal, yeah. right? So awesome. I got I, I got the immediate goals, the midterm, and the long ones. Awesome. So, any big lessons? Any key mentors at Bedrock? Uh, and then we got to talk about your first entre- entrepreneurial journey in in Tennessee. I didn't even know that was on the radar. Yeah, I. Um, you know, mentors. I, I don't know. I've been asked that question a lot of times in my career, and I and I um, I honestly can't point to an individual or even a small set. Uh, I I feel I like I'm a student of life, and 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 I observe, and I've just you know I've learned from hundreds of people and try to pick pluck something out of every conversation and or every meaningful engagement. And um, but honestly, my greatest uh, I, I've learned the most from my own mistakes. And, um, uh, and, and also watching some of the errors that other, other, other folks do. We don't learn as much from our victories. Yeah. So, and, and frankly, we're probably not supposed to. So, did, did I cut you short? Go ahead. Yeah. I was just saying that, that that's part of what gets you in trouble, right? Yeah. When you lose humility, when you're, when you're not as humble, um, you're, you're, you're backing yourself into a corner. Your lens and your, your view narrows. Yeah. Did the mistakes in your life stand out pretty significantly right now? They do. I mean, I like, let's I, take it chronologically. I, yeah, What's yeah, the first I, one? <laughs> I still have bruises. <laughs> take us to the first big mistake that you learned from. Um, you know, the, uh, I didn't have a lot of them professionally until I had a really good one. Okay. So, um, and that, I think that's, uh, I, I can speak from experience that when you get, um, too confident, was this in Tennessee or was this back when you got moved back west to uh, Denver? Yeah. No, so it was. Um, so I had opened up a, a business, a couple of business in Nashville. Okay. And then I moved. Uh, I was continuing to operate those businesses and I moved to Austin and I opened up another business okay. there. Still there today. What's uh, the name of that business? It's called Buffalo Billiards. Oh, okay. It's Sixth and Brazos. And to gotcha. see, I, ironically, the next punch bowl I open is a block and a half. <laughs> from that at Sixth and Congress in Austin, Texas. So this so. is like really your, your early years as an entrepreneur or restaurateur. What were the biggest mistakes you were making? Knowing what you know today, reflecting back at that time, what would you have done differently? See, I I, I think I, I did fine at this stage. And it wasn't until then I moved to Denver. I opened up another business. I had even more success. I was doing very well. Um, and I was still young. So I think. What I think was it was, about what you were doing that was going well? What 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 did you do right? Well, that um, what I was doing right ultimately was what uh, I think um, led to overconfidence. Meaning, um, I'm a I, I, I'm a um, I'm a high quality designer. Uh, I understand my consumer. I understand how to design authentically um, for uh, for for the audience and, and at that time. And um, I sort of became overconfident. I believe that um, that my design and my concepting the way I put together, you know, engineered menus and beverage programs and an interior design could overcome average or bad real estate. Um, and that's just, that's just not the case. Okay. So that's what you thought that your design ability could overcome bad location, bad, bad real estate. Or yeah. Just concepting concept. and designing could overcome 
other bad decisions like average real estate. Okay. And, you, and, you, and that's not the case. That is not the and case. you learned this the hard way? I proved it. Okay. How? <laughs> Take us to a specific uh, example. Yeah. I opened, um, so again, I was having a, a lot of success and um, owned businesses in three states. And then I opened up um, you know, one, one of my um, a, a concept that I'm extraordinarily proud of. It's called Brasserie Rouge. You know, written about in Gourmet Magazine at the time, which for us in 2003, okay, it was a big deal for us. Um, we it was the first time I won a Best New Restaurant. No, excuse me, second time I'd won a Best New Restaurant award, um, and um, and it lost money every day. It was open for 13 months. Isn't it funny how that happens? When we look at publications, we see these all these awards, Best New. That you know, we think of the best, and then when you pull back the layers and you look into the books, like they're hemorrhaging money. They're not doing good. They're not like they're, they're scraping to get by. It's because I think people have this, this, this false sense that uh, it is a version of success. Positive editorialization from third parties is nothing other than a stepping stone. If you don't use it as anything other than a tool in the box, it's literally useless. Mm. Cause if you think it actually is an accomplishment, you're wrong. You can use it to translate your business into commercial success but in the meantime, all you have is editorial success, which might it it might get you laid, but it's not going to pay the bills. It's not going to return money to your investors. It's not going to pay rent. It's, it's good marketing. It's good advertisement, but that's short term, right? Like, yeah. are you going to be able to keep? Are you going to be able to retain those people once they come in and try your 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 restaurant for the first time because it wasn't published someplace? Maybe you got to. I mean, that's a challenge to retain those people. But. That's true. But even if you're knocking it out operationally, if you put it in an inconvenient location for your consumer, they're still going to come once a month as opposed to three times a month. Yeah, awesome. Okay, so moving forward, I mean, nine locations. Um, this is the 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 restaurant group you established, uh, Cocktail Concepts Inc. Correct, nine mm-hmm. locations. Um, any other experiences in this these early days uh, coming up that are worth spending some time on? Any lessons learned that you said you learned from your mistakes? Any other lessons we can hover over before talking about current time and how you've developed Punchbowl Social? You know, I, I think um, as I mentioned, you, you you have to keep things in perspective. Don't um, you you narrow your your view um, when you become too confident because clearly overconfidence. Um, you know, becomes arrogance and arrogance. I'm not sure anyone has ever put together arrogance in a positive sentence. Mm-hmm. I don't think it can structurally be done in the English language. So when you <laughs> so. are experiencing these successes, um, how do you keep yourself modest? How do, how do you check yourself? Well, for me, I remember just one of my, my own favorite quotes from, from myself. I've said it a lot of times that um, I just remind myself what the world looked like um, from the angle of picking my teeth up off the floor. You remind yourself of what the world looked like from the angle of picking your teeth off, off the floor. What did it look like? Take the, me to, the, to that time, what that vision is. Well, when you see your teeth on the ground, <laughs> okay, that's, that's, that's stage one, right? Stage two is looking up at the world from way down there when things didn't go very well. So take, me, take me to an emotional spot. Where, take me to that point where your teeth were on the floor. What were you feeling? What was going on? Paint that picture of what low looks like. You know, um, uh, it's a. It, it really is a sense of desperation when you are um, when you are have the confidence that um, and it's shattered. Um, it's an important thing down the road. It's it's very bleak um, in the moment. And uh, for me, you know, it's not hard to you know I can see it all clearly in in my mind today. You know, which leads me to the you know the other thing that I you know I, I you learn from that is that. Um, uh, it, it helped me keep my uh, my eye on the horizon as opposed to the moment, meaning, 
you know, when you're in a bad place, if you just if you just keep on turning the wheel, you'll you'll roll right out of there. Yeah, you, you really will. And I don't mean that just professionally, just personally and emotionally. And just, and if you just the, the moment you stop turning, is you're going to get bogged down in the mud, and, yeah. and you'll never get out of it. I mean, you, you said that place. There was is there one specific place? Is there a low that is that is coming to mind right now? Is it something that you're willing to talk about or able to talk about? Uh, no, I I I, um, I mean there. Uh, there's a whole different podcast we could probably talk about, <laughs> right? Of all the the, the spectrum of despair, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? But um, I think uh, what may be helpful for your listeners is that um, you know uh, is that uh, I, I've been in that low place, and and if you um, you know if you're interested in getting out of it, well, you, it's it's very simple. You just got to keep walking. All right. I love it. Um, it's true. I mean, like you said, eyes on the horizon. Just look, don't look at the past. Don't get caught up on what, you know, it's behind you. There's nothing you can do about it, but you can focus on the future. You can focus on making it better. Right? I don't, I, we, I still have defeats. Yeah. Um, and I just, I just don't, um, I don't absorb them the same way. They don't metabolize the way that they did to me back then. Back then I could metabolize the whole thing like a, like, like a shot right into the, the, the biggest muscle in your body. <laughs> now, you know, I can deflect a lot of those because I can put it in perspective. I keep what I need and I get rid of what I don't. Got you. So your vision, take us to when you started to transition away from, or is Cocktails Inc. Uh, or Cocktails Concepts Inc.? Yeah, Cocktail Concepts. Is, is this part, is this under that umbrella or is this a totally different beast? No. So um, initially I, I created Punchable Social under Season Development, which is my new management company. But now, um, even even now I've taken it actually out of the Season Development umbrella that it operates under um, Punchable Social has a whole co right where the intellectual property resides, etc. So where were you in 2008? So from what I was able to gather, it was around 2008 that you started dreaming, right? And I think it was 2010 that I saw that you had an idea, you had the vision, and then it took two years to actually make it happen. But take us to what, what was going on in 2008. Why you had nine restaurants at this time, or it was just a total of nine restaurants? No. So when I um, when I when Brasserie Rouge went down just before that six six nine months before that i had sold all my out-of-state assets okay uh, and i took all my money personal capital and put it into brasserie rouge um which went out of business and so i effectively uh, lost everything what was I, the lifespan of uh, brasserie rouge uh 13 months 13 months right so it was the culmination of of six years of work uh flushed in 13 months is this that point that you were yeah, looking down through teeth on the ground? That's right. <laughs> um, Sorry, I could have filled in a little more of the details <laughs> yeah. around why that was so I'm going to get so into it. Like, I'll get to it eventually. <laughs> uh, so 13 years, your whole life working up to this, what was the vision for this restaurant? Um, you know, they're, they're just, uh, I had been doing some big box, um, high volume bar concepts with, uh, it, with entertainment, mostly upscale um, billiard parlors. Gotcha. That's what I was doing. And, um, you know what I started to uh, see is an opportunity to uh, to take advantage of the confluence of um, no one was uh, taking advantage of or had was designing and operating anything with a meaningful culinary component to it. So there were bars with games, and I wanted to evolve this into my joint um, background of restaurants and bars. So I was able to put this together from a, a high volume bar with a restaurateur's mindset, um, and then also I saw the emerging psychographic of of the millennial, which cl- you know clearly has been for almost a decade now the dominant demographic um, uh, in, uh, in, uh, in in the U.S. at least. Um, 
uh, from an influential perspective and um, and saw that really no one was designing brands um, authentically for them. And so being able to put together the concept model the right way with the craft beverage and the culinary component and doing it with a, from a design perspective and an approach that, that translated very authentically to my audience, that wasn't out there. And I would argue it's still not out there other than Punchbowl in the entertainment category. Okay. Um, all right. I think I'm going to take a one quick break to thank our sponsors and we'll pick it up from there because there's a lot of things I want to unpack. Bento Box is more, much, much more than just another restaurant website developer. It is a hospitality platform designed to disrupt third-party services that come between the restaurant and the guest. Bento Box puts the restaurant first and offers tools that drive high-margin revenue directly through the restaurant website. These tools allow you to easily update menus, promote and sell events, share your press and media attention with the world, sell gift cards, take catering orders and much much more in other words bento box puts you in control so that you can focus on what matters most your restaurant bento box is trusted and loved by over 5,000 restaurants worldwide because they empower restaurants to own their presence profits and relationships online sign up today at getbento.com slash unstoppable one more time that is getbento.com slash unstoppable all right we're back and some of the key things i want to pull from what you just shared with us when coming up with the vision of punchbowl social um you started with the end in mind and the end is the end user the the the, the guest the, the the person that you're, you're you're existing to serve right uh what's the the power of starting with the end in mind starting with the person that you the the, the, the final product the, the experience is going to be delivered to yeah i mean you know it, being able to reverse engineer is always better than poke and pray right as you plot along the way and hoping that each thing works so um i don't know i um i'm not trying to be um um, capricious about it but it just it, it seems to me self-obvious right that if you can if you can engineer towards your your end game um, you have a competitive advantage well I think there's two things that were, were going on you, you started with the end in mind but you also identified a target market that wasn't being served the way you wanted to serve them so there was yeah. a unique selling proposition there was a niche that you were filling which is I think do you want to dive into that yeah so um, the the opportunity right was to fill that void um, it just uh, because I had been in the big box uh, and I understood, you know, which is also an, you know, a relevant component of, of my experience and my company's experience, right, is that, you know, I understood how to uh, conceptualize, design, develop, and construct big boxes, which is not something that all of us in the restaurant space know how to do. It's a whole different animal, right? So I was able to bring that skill together. But um, with respect to the consumer, they, um, you know, they weren't being served. There was the void there. Let's yeah. hover over this consumer we're talking about because you, you had – the millennial age group in your crosshairs, which, you know, people in their twenties and early thirties, right? What was it, you know, you've been identified as somebody who can relate to this target market really well. What is it about this target market that you understand? Like what, give us your understanding of this market and how to serve this market. Yeah. You know, there is uh, there's, there's a lot of science in there, but there's some art to understanding them. And, you know, the science will tell you that you have to design authentically and you have to, um, and we know that they have a, there's a gravity towards experiences versus, um, um, the acquisition of assets. Can you speak to those, right. those, um, sciences that the, are behind it? The, of the, of the psychographic. Of, yes. Well, I mean, it's as simple as the data study, right. Of understanding, you know, um, the value propositions for, for millennials, right. It's understanding, um, that 
that they're seeking experience. And we know through survey data, right, that, um, that they also are, they were pushing away the old brands. I won't use any names here, you know, for your podcast, but you can imagine what some of the old guard um, uh, brands are out there that have been in decline for the last decade that do not appeal in the casual dining category to millennials. They don't have any authenticity. They aren't scratch. Um, and these are things that um, became high value for millennials versus um, Gen Z, excuse me, Gen X, which is my generation, right? And and boomers before that. So there, you know, there was um, then the step into the art uh, element of developing something for this cohort. Okay, so... And, and that's what's harder to define, right? Mm-hmm. It's like, if you asked, you know, if, if you asked someone to explain to you why they created a piece of art, it's, you know, th- there's a visceral element to it. There's some articulation and there's some of it, you know, that's just because it felt right. <laughs> yeah. So I want to try to see if I can extract the nuggets from what you just share with us. Uh, the, the psychographic of the, the or the, the desires, the, the, the things that a millennial wants is basically an experience, right? This, this millennial generation is, is steering away from, uh, things we don't really acquire, want things in life we want experiences in life we're, we're, we're beyond the, the tangible and more thinking about getting that experience and you recognize that and you also recognize that there was a, um, a certain brands out there um i'll just throw a couple brands out that come out to mind <laughs> you're not willing to but i will uh probably dave and busters or planet hollywood these experience driven uh concepts were kind of on the decline and you also recognize that. So you saw a decline and you saw a, a niche that a, a demographic that wasn't being served under this umbrella of experience focused dining. Yeah. But it was so, beyond just experiential um, food and beverage, right? Cause re- remember when, when I put together punchable social uh, between 2010 and 2012, we weren't even um, talking about a subcategory of entertainment, right? It wasn't, it existed. It had not been defined. Um, Dave and Buster's, you you know, had been around for a few decades, right? Technically, you know, but the framework of entertainment, they are within the category. Um, but it wasn't until Punchbowl came along that, that the category itself started to be fleshed out and articulated. So, um, so, but it wasn't just entertainment where the, where, where, and, and we weren't thinking about Gen Z at the time. We we're just thinking about millennials, um, that it was the entire casual dining category. You know, and only because I don't have any friends in this company, uh, I'll throw it out there that, you know, Chili's is an example, right? Of just, um, I think it still has a, a, a version of commercial success, but I don't think anyone thinks it's authentic and I don't think anyone believes that it appeals to millennial and Gen Z audiences. And, and I certainly don't think anyone would assert that it is on the rise. Mm-hmm. So, the, bringing it back to this early time when you're, you're, you have your concept, you have your vision, you, you realize what you want to be around 2010, um, you're recovering from, a, a like you mentioned, a huge failure. Um, you put almost, you said you sold everything, you put everything to this one restaurant that after 13 months didn't make it. Um, and you said you recovered from that by just keeping your eyes on the horizon, but you said you put almost everything into this. How did you have the, the I mean, these are big facilities that you're, you're, you're building. How did you, after that failure, get the the, the money behind you, the, 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 the confidence back and the confidence in people to invest in you after a failure. Yeah. So, uh, it started, um, having to, um, actually begin, um, restart my entrepreneurial career even more humbly than I began it. Um, you know, I was able to raise $2.2 million in my first venture in 1997 with, you know, with only, 
you know, a vision and passion uh, that I could articulate to, um, you know, to uh, a set of investors. In, um, in 2008, after a long sabbatical, 2007, actually, uh, sabbatical out of the industry, just sort of a bit in the, in the, in the desert uh, of, of sorts, um, we uh, started the Great Recession. <laughs> so not a great time to do anything. So I was able to cobble together $250,000 and open up a little restaurant in Cherry Creek uh, that was called Argyle. Okay. And um, it was tiny, 70-seat restaurant. Uh, was, you know, if you're in 1997, my first restaurant was 23,000 wow. square feet. And so I'm operating this, you know, this, this micro venue and I'm the GM of one of, you know, of a restaurant again for the first time in over a decade. What was this experience going from being used to such massive venues to being in an intimate tight space? What was that, that transition like? It, 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 um, I don't, I don't describe it as a transition, but I think about it as, um, the experience though, um, it helped me um, remember my my early passion for the industry, mm-hmm. why I loved putting together restaurant brands and how I loved to operate them and what it felt like to deliver um, the experience to the guests. Paint that picture of what you truly are passionate about. What is that fire inside of you? From, well, um, go a little higher for me, though. As, uh, help me understand that question well, better. You said that this experience going back into this intimate setting uh, in Cherry Creek uh, – kind of reignited that flame, that passion. What is it specifically that you're passionate about? What is your, I mean, there's so many verticals within the restaurant industry, like whether it's design, customer service, cooking, whatever it is, you can be passionate about so many things. What was it that you were passionate about? I'm passionate about the composite of, of a concept and an enterprise, right? And, and so it is everything from the real estate deal. I'm I'm a bit of a real estate geek and I, I love, I love those transactions and negotiating them. Okay. Putting those together, design development, concepting, bringing together the team on the culinary and the beverage side, purchasing the chairs and the wall finishes, you know, but it, it, you know, all these things we could, you know, we could go on for 20 minutes about all the little elements that come together, but it is, um, it has to finish with a satisfied guest walking out the door. Right. And I, and I think I was a little removed from that final cherry on top for a little while in my career, remembering what it was like to actually be the manager on duty that dropped the bill on the table for one of my waiters. Um, and to know that, um, they were paying that bill with pleasure Mm. because they enjoyed it all. So your, your true passion in the industry is the design, the, the, the bringing it all together, the, the, the concepting, right? No, it's the commercialization of all of it. Okay. It's being able to take the artistic side of what you were just leaning into on the design and the developing um, and putting all of that together with the real estate side of it and the concepting and bringing to the people part of it together. It's the whole package for me that makes my socks roll up and down. And then this experience in Cherry Creek is being closer to the to the, the end users, what kind of brought you back and reminded you that while you love all these things you just expressed to us, um, you maybe, dr- did you drift from the end user, do you think? Yeah, I, I think so. It was a detail there, right? You know, there's a, old, there's a word, uh, words worth saying, right? When every time I think of the impact of the little things, I'm tempted to say there's no such thing as a little thing. Yeah. So you've scaled now to 19 locations and you're further theoretically further away from the end user more than ever before, likely um, on paper at least. How, yeah, but what, I haven't lost it. Exactly. So, so what, what are you, my question is, what are you doing 
you recognize that in the past you've lost the connection to the guest. What are you doing now to keep that connection? How do you, how do you with 19 locations, stay more connected to the guest now than ever before? Team, in the way that we, we, we talk and our culture here in the organization, um, we talk about, uh, we, we talk about a, a moral obligation that we have and that actually our servers and bartenders have to deliver a certain experience in order to exchange services for money um, from our guests. And, um, and, and that, that helps the team um, calibrate around the importance of, of having a moral obligation to doing these things right. We don't do these things because it's our job, right? That's part of it. The other part of it is actually it, you're, you, know, you have an obligation to do the best you can every day that you're, that you're exchanging services for money. Team communication and implementing a moral obligation. What, what is that? moral obligation um how do you express and communicate that moral obligation what does it look like when you're when you have a new hire and you're you're teaching them this culture of moral obligation what does that look like yeah so my my um my version of a new hire is a little higher up right i'm not coaching servers any longer um but last week we hired um a a, a new crop of um five regional directors of operation we never in my career we brought in so many high impact individuals or professionals into, into our company. Um, and, but we put, we got them all at the same time, the best crop of talent I've ever been able to bring in at, at once. And, um, and we had a week long boot camp with them, right? So it was, it, it was, let's talk this through. So day one was, um, you know, four hours with me, um, learning the history of it and understanding what the ethics and and um, and ethos and practices uh, are for for us as an organization and obligation to the guest. So what I'm hearing is you, you know you, you went you found high quality people, but then you recreated yourself in these people. You injected your 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 vision for what the brand is and your values into these people. Maybe, but I've injected that into the brand. I think is more accurate, and I think the brand helps inject that. So I've injected myself into the brand and the brand. Um, is more important than me now. So how do you in- inject yourself into a brand? What things did you do? And this is kind of, we're coming back full circle. We were talking about this earlier. Give me some specific things that every brand needs to have in order to have its owner in- injected into it. I think um, presence, you know, is key. Um, yeah, I think there's, a, um, there's, uh, there, there's always that... Um, uh, that unmeasurable uh, impact of uh, of the team understanding that you know I'm working the same, if not more hours than they are. Yeah, so um, that does mean something. They know that you're working, but what happens when they don't physically see you at a location? How are you there when you're not there? Mm. They listen to podcasts like this. <laughs> <laughs> I got you. We use these actually. Sometimes I've I've had conversations, and we because um, I don't I don't I don't choose to sit around and talk about my history. Mm. Right. But I have no choice when I speak with folks like you. Yeah. <laughs> so we use these and we share them. Right. Because like, the, you know, the other folks in the company, they're like, well, we're not going to get them to say that again. And so we might as well use this podcast. <laughs> I got you. Um, so dialing back. I, I, but I'm sorry. I feel like I gave you a glib answer on that. But they're, they're, um, your, your question is, how do, we, how do I inject <laughs> my, my presence into, into the organization? Yeah. I, I, I think it's, um, again, it comes back to other people. So, um, there's a, there's a level of folks that I interact with every day. Um, and you know, and they have to be entrusted to, um, you know, to carry the water. So they carry the water the right way. And then the layer below them carries the water the right way. It all starts at the top. If I don't deliver it to them, they can't deliver it to their, to their sub team. And, and, you know, I, I'm, I'm not doing 
Yeah. So 19 locations now. You started in Denver. Um, was the second location in Denver? or? I guess my, my question ultimately is going to be, how are you choosing these locations? You said that your, your it factor, the thing that you're really good at is real estate. You're kind of a real estate nerd in developing those brands. So what are you looking for when you're looking for a location? Like what's most important to you? Yeah, it, um, that's, um, that's uh, again, our uh, science and art, but, there's, but that one's mostly science. What's the science that uh, you're using? Well, we, we look for multifamily housing density uh, within a ring. Um, uh, Can you tell me the, the, the distance of that ring? Well, um, uh, ring is an outdated term. Sorry, it's a catch-all. It's like calling all sodas Coke. Yeah. Right? Um, the, um, we don't think about it in terms of rings anymore. We think about it. Now we have, we're able to use data, and we can, um, we can triangulate um, mobile data with credit card transactions that occur inside of Punchable Socials um, with uh, typical drive times of our, of our core demographic our core demographic as defined by our credit card transactions, who we know comes into Denver and Portland and Austin and spends money. And then we drop that over uh, uh, an address and we can determine what the, um, the drive time willingness is for our core audience to make it into that trade area where a punchable social, a, a prospective punchable social um, will land and we can um, and we can get a very strong number with respect to what our performer sales will be. Okay. But we don't even start. So we're not just dropping that pin um, all over the map. You know, uh, the, you know, USA. Um, it starts with finding um, a density of multifamily housing, uh, which is where millennials typically reside. More disposable income, probably not kids yet. Um, otherwise, they'd uh, they'd have a starter home somewhere. Um, and then um, we also think about because approximately 35% of our aggregate sales are corporate event, which, by the way, is about 15% below the entertainment average. We don't we're not as um, uh, uh, we're not as hooked into the uh, or, or we don't require or we don't want as much corporate traffic as some of our competitors do. We like a la carte sales. I'd like to get into that, but I want you to finish unpacking sure. what's on your mind. And then uh, and so it has to we have to have an adjacency to a central business district. So it's that it's that combination of um, high density uh, multifamily housing and CBD. Okay. Um, so, where are you pulling exactly this data? Are you getting it from your POS? Credit card transactions come out of the POS. We um, we transact with a third party service where we get the mobile data. Can you share that third party service? Yeah, it's uh, it's called Esites. They're a great company. I recommend. Um, you know, you need a certain, um, you have to be at a certain scale for them to have enough data to, to give you an accurate output. Um, but, you know, d- depending on whether you're a fast casual or casual dining or entertainment, you know, it's anywhere from 10 to 20 locations before that data is worth the investment. Okay, I got you. So basically, what you, you had a formula that you created in the first and second and third location, and you were trying to, you found this formula that works. And then you're looking at the data to figure out exactly what's going on with this formula. And then you're recreating that formula in other locations using the, the variables that are creating success mm-hmm. in Denver and the other places, the earlier locations is what I'm hearing from you. So anything else you want to unpack with regard to picking a location and things that you really look at? Uh, we look for um, uh, other, other restaurant gravity. Uh, we don't. We what don't do you mean like, by gravity? We don't want to. We want to. We want to commingle with other great brands. We don't think about them as competitors. I wouldn't open up, you know, next to a direct competitor to us. Someone that had, you know, twenty thousand square feet and and some and some games and a and a robust um, bar program. 
Um, but uh, we do like to be around other great restaurants and bars as opposed to just sitting out on an island, we think, you know. So instead of looking at these other concepts around you as competitors, you're looking at them as collaborators. How do you approach these people when you're new to town? How do you become friend enough, foe? Um, I don't know that we 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 don't become foe. It, not everybody views us this in, views this the same way that we do. Um, that we're sort of partners in a district and we make the district better. I know that when I opened up my first location for Punchbowl here on First and Broadway, um, all the businesses in the trade area went up twenty percent in the first year, just by us being inserted into it. So it's you know, the whole Danny Myers what he says like all all ships rise with the tide, right? Totally. Yeah. So. What what are some of the negative experiences you've had with people that didn't want to be your friend? Um, how do they see you? You said that you see yourself a certain way and other people don't always see you the same way. How do you think they saw it? Oh, I mean, I, I just think it's the um, uh, the short-sighted you know, perspective that, you know, well, you're just here to take, you know, this is my neighborhood. I've been here longer than you. We're here, you're here to take our sales, that, that perspective. Yeah. It's never, I mean, you know. I never got jumped in the alley and beat up. <laughs> so know. how do you, how do you um, remind yourself that when you're moving into, like, how do you carry yourself when you're approaching your neighbors and in, in engaging in conversation? Do you, do you knock on the door? How do you start off on the right foot? Yeah. So I don't personally anymore, right? Other than when I'm doing the initial diligence in the neighborhood, which is often about three years before we open up a new location. It takes that long to get one of these things off the ground. Um, the uh you know i and i'm not even really talking to management at that point i'm just talking to the bartenders and the waiters <laughs> in their venues about what what they see in the area but we do ask once we have a an operating team on the ground um they are required to just go out and walk in and shake hands and say hey we're new we want you know um let us know how we can help got you so one thing that you you said um that you don't do a lot of corporate events i found that really surprising because i would have assumed with a space like this an entertainment space I mean, that's probably one of the verticals you could lean into to really increase your revenue. Why, what is it exactly that makes you steer away from corporate events? Why, why not lean into that opportunity? It's not that we steer away from them. We just feel like um, our model performs best with a cap at around that 35%. Because if we, if we overemphasize the events, we are um, alienating the a la carte okay. traffic off the street. And if you... If, if um, if you feel like you're going to come to a punchable social on Tuesday and every Tuesday it's shut down for a corporate event, you're going to stop coming on Tuesday. Yep. So, but that it goes all the, you know that has to that ties back to the the comprehensive approach that I get so excited about. We lay these things out and program them for that. So, punchable socials are twenty to twenty five thousand square feet, but we we program them and compartmentalize them in a way to feel warm on a Tuesday when there's only fifty people in the building. Right. That's hard to do. But that compartmentalization also allows for us to have four events going on at the same time while um, still um, servicing the a la carte sales off the street. So you'll kind of divide up your floor space into like regions for different events going on at the same time. And I've actually been at a punch bowl social in Austin uh, where there was an event going on and you don't even know that there's an event there because people just they have like a home base, right? It's a corner of a room, right? It's a home base. And then people leave their home base to go bowl or go play fool's ball or go to shuffleboard or whatever. So you wouldn't know unless you see the sign that this is an event for like, there's usually a sign that people can see where their event is, but that, that, that bleeding, that, that blending together, uh, there's almost an art to that. Is there not? I think, yeah. And uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, you know, we think about it in terms of modules too, right? It's like, you know, uh, you can have one room that services 30, but then we can modulate 
three other rooms together with it without you having to, you know, walk across a, an open area um, and service 250 people, you know, at the same time. But it, but it's it's an it's an integral element to every punchable social. By the way, that Austin location reopens this weekend. We shut it down for a month to remodel. Um, we put um, 1.2 million dollars back into that space, and it's only four and a half years old, right? But um, we just we 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 wanted to introduce some new design elements, but we also wanted to put our putt club, uh, which is a new uh, indoor putting. Uh, it's it's mini golf in essence. That so, we put so what's the lesson behind the shutting down a location for a few months or a month to, to make it better? What, why, what, what do you, what do you, what's going through your mind? What's your thought process there? We're um, one, it was our third location and we had more of a limited budget and I've always, um, it's always bothered me uh, that I wasn't able to design that one the way that, uh, that, that was in my mind's eye. So mm-hmm. I've been looking for an excuse to, 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 re- <laughs> to remodel that one for a while. Yeah. So, uh, so I took advantage of this new, um, uh, entertainment component of mini golf that we put into, we figured out a way to do nine holes in 2000 square feet <laughs> inside. And it's kind of cool. Is it compact. the same footprint that you use every place for the, for the mini uh, golf? Yeah. Um, okay. well, I know we, we just put 18 holes of it here in Stapleton outside, which is different. <laughs> and then we have nine yeah. in Cleveland and nine in, in Austin. We just started unfolding those and, but it was a, I, I I think I don't want to speak for them, but it was a key element why Fast Company Magazine um, they you know recognized us as one of the fifty most innovative companies in the world this year. But, but I think the, the sorry, keep going. I was just going to say it's that it's it's the willingness to iterate uh, combined with developing a disruptive concept model like Punchable Social that made you know I think the the editorial board there choose us but i think it's also important to stay fresh right you, you need to reinvest you need to inject money back into a business that I means there a formula that you use uh is there so many years that go by before you you choose to, to refresh or is it just kind of as needed it's not formulaic it's really it's opportunity driven there's a little bit of what's the available capex um you know uh in the company where we want to um you know on an annual basis uh, apply those resources okay one, one more thing i want to talk about before we go to the speed round i've been loving this conversation you've been giving us really great advice um you partnered with uh cracker barrel it was a really interesting partnership um what was going on with this partnership what are, what are the benefits of a partnership like this they, they are a great company that's been around for 50 years and and so when they first hit the scene um they were disruptive as well right no one was putting together um, casual family dining um, with retail, right? Um, and I, so I would argue they're the first um, restaurant industry lifestyle brand, even though they didn't know it. I presented to 50 of their vice presidents in, in Dallas a few months ago. And I, you know, was assertive with them that, you know, you guys are a great lifestyle brand. And some of the folks in the audience, did, it didn't click, right? <laughs> you know, but it did by the time we were done talking. And so they're a great lifestyle brand. Their audience, everything in that in those four walls is part of their lifestyle. Might not be part of your lifestyle, but it is part of millions of other people's lifestyle. So I, I had a lot of respect for them. Um, I also, um, you know, it, it's not my recognition. There's a, there's a belief that, um, that, that they're going to run out of organic growth. They need, you know, the, uh, I think the uh, institutional investing community has suggested to them for a long time that they need to invest into growth. Um, with an absence of organic growth, you're going to have to do that outside. So um, I reached out to them directly. No brokers. We didn't have an investment bankers involved. I just eff- effectively cut this deal with um, Sandy Cochran, their CEO, and her core team. So what, 
what, what impact were you going to have? How are you going to be organic growth? Well, so they made a minority investment into my company. Okay. Um, they're, they're our partner, um, but they're, you know, but they're based in Tennessee and we're based in Denver. We operate separately, but as great friends <laughs> and, um, uh, we're going to, uh, they have supplied capital for us to continue with our assertive, um, growth trajectory. And, um, at some point, you know, we'll, we'll discuss whether it's right for them to acquire the entire company and, and then they get to take full, um, balance sheet credit for punchable social. And they, you know, presumably everything goes the right way. We're accretive to their stock, et cetera. Got you. Um, one more thing that's really got me interested. Something that you keep mentioning is the life being a lifestyle brand. Like, what are the key elements to a lifestyle brand? What does a, what does a successful lifestyle brand look like? I, I mean, it. it uh, perhaps I'll point back to that Cracker Barrel example again. Right? It's just that you know we we, we reflect. It reflects the way that um, you know the, a particular set of consumers live their life. It's reflective. They feel. They feel when they walk in the door um, that they're home. They right? identify with it, and exactly. And for us in punchable social world, our consumer um, is different, um, culturally different. Obviously, the same. You know, we're all humans, and we all fall into an age category. But um, you know, our consumer is a is a bit more uh, urban of a mindset, um, and they demand certain things to feel that we reflect their lifestyle. Um, and, uh, you know, from our design to, again, back to authenticity and we know our consumer demands, you know, a scratch culinary product and, and innovation and craft in the beverage program. So these are things that are all reflective of, uh, of that lifestyle. Mm. Um, and you know, that, that all really ties together with a string of experiences, whether it's experience in the design, you know, in living, um, uh, within that. Uh, or it's or it's the gaming component. Yeah, and you mentioned authenticity a bunch of times in this, this interview as well. What is your plan for retaining that authenticity as you continue to scale into the future? We, I, I will continue to look through this same lens. I, I you know, what happens to um, the brand when I'm I'm I, I hope my impact um, uh, on this brand um, will outlast my tenure as its leader. And um, I hope that the future leaders want to carry on um, the, you know, the, the proud history of focusing on authenticity. Mm. Um, and it's going to take the right set of leaders to accomplish that. Yeah, but what does focusing on authenticity look like? What is that? <laughs> it is. <laughs> it's tough questions I it, ask. I know. It, I well, it, it, it's the art side of it again, right? Yeah. You know, I mean, do you do you have opinions about, um, you know, uh, uh, about authenticity? I mean, don't you look at certain restaurant brands and you can, and you go inauthentic, authentic. Well, yeah. I mean, I have, I have thoughts and ideas and how you hang on to that, but I'm, I'm, I'm trying to get, I want to know what you think. I don't want to put, you know, I don't, I mean, my, my core, my core belief on that is core values and, and not just saying like, this is who I am and, and acting it, but you have to cement it into writing. You have to mm. echo it every day. You have to remind people every day, this is who we are. This is what we stand for. These are our values. This is what makes us different. This, and you said, you know, earlier, I think the word you used was, um, your obligation, you know, that that's like the echoing thing. It sounds like we are, we are obligated. Like this is our, this is our culture. We are obligated to take care of the guests. It, it is a, you know, it is a, um, uh, it, it is a mosaic, um, of of elements that, that that bring about the authenticity, and it certainly is 
um, you know, if, if the future leaders will have the same rigidity that I do with respect to the ethos, um, you know, we are, you know, we work very hard to lower our carbon footprint in this company. That's authentic. And we're in, and it's only authentic if you actually are consistent with it, right? Mm-hmm. It's not authentic. It, we don't do it for marketing purposes, although if it benefits us from a marketing perspective, great. But we do it even when it's extraordinarily inconvenient. We self-audit twice a year to, for, for gender pay equality. And there's, we don't report that to anyone. Yeah. And we end up having to pay out more money, yeah. right? These are the things that you do to be true to yourself, which I think always just translate as authentic. So when, I hear you, what I'm hearing from you is authenticity isn't just talking the talk, but it's walking the walk. It's doing what you say you do, existing the way you, you say you exist and living those values every day. Correct. I love it. Um, one more question before we go to the speed round. It's something I've been asking all my guests lately. The mission statement of this podcast is to inspire, empower, and transform the industry. So let me know, how have you transformed over these two decades? Who are you today? Who is the man you are today versus the man you were when you were getting started? How have you transformed? <laughs> I don't know that um, I'm wiser, but um, I, I'm not any different than I was as um, – an overachieving, um, semi-arrogant kid <laughs> when I was 20 years old. How are you more wise? Give me an example of one thing that is, has served you, some wisdom you've picked up. Yeah, I, I listen a lot harder to other people. Mm. I, I learned, you know, I think I mentioned earlier, I, I, I try to be a student of, of life and an and, and observer. And, um, and, I, and I recognize uh, there's a lot of wisdom uh, and knowledge and everybody else that's just free for me to take in. You just got to be willing to grab it. I love it. Awesome stuff. We're going to take one more quick break to thank our sponsors. We'll be right back to bust out a quick speed round. It's the entrepreneurial myth, and I'm sure you're familiar with it. It's the idea that when you open your own restaurant, life is going to get easy because you get to do exactly what it is that you love, whether that's front of house or back of house. And then reality kicks in, right? You've got to do all this other stuff that comes with owning a business like taxes, HR, payroll, really boring stuff. That's where Gusto comes in. Gusto makes payroll, taxes, HR actually easy for small business. And if you want to add on 401k or health benefits, it's a breeze. Those old school clunky payroll providers just were not built for the modern small business. Not to mention, you, you've got to compete with the big guys. But how do you compete with the big guys when you don't have big guy bucks? Well, with Gusto. That's how. Get back to doing what it is you love and let Gusto handle the rest. And because you are Restaurant Unstoppable listeners, you'll get your first three months free when you run your first payroll. That's Gusto.com slash unstoppable. Again, Gusto.com slash unstoppable. If you're sick of paying multiple vendors and services to outfit your restaurant needs only to deal with the frustrations of technology that's clunky and void of that seamless experience that you so need, then you've got to check out Restaurant 365, a cloud-based restaurant-specific accounting and back office platform that seamlessly integrates with your POS system, payroll provider, food and beverage vendors, and banks. With Restaurant 365, you'll have real-time reporting and analysis to make the best and most data-driven decisions 
questions, no more guessing. Other features include detailed daily in labor data from your POS system, accounts payable automation, automated bank reconciliation, incorporated inventory management with guidance on reducing your food costs, and scheduling features to reduce labor costs and engage your employees, all saving you time, money, and headaches. Take action today and find out how Restaurant 365 is saving restaurant owners up to 5% on Prime costs. That's awesome. Head over to restaurant365.com slash unstoppable and qualify for 30% off implementation and get a free inventory build within the system, a value of 5K. We're back. And the first question I have for you is what is your it factor, a habit, a trait, a characteristic you believe most contributes to your success? Grind. Grind. What is your biggest weakness? Grind. How is it your weakness and your strength? Uh, pushing too hard. Yeah. Um, not everybody needs to go at my pace. I got to respect other people's pace. When you've pushed too hard, how do you recover? How do I recover you- from a relationship standpoint or sure. just in... Um, uh, um, <laughs> ask, for, ask for forgiveness and commit, <laughs> and commit to do better, man. That's, I love it. that's what we do. Got it. Uh, what is one thing that is your biggest challenge today? Um, the, from a from a professional perspective, it's um, it, it's people pipeline. People pipeline. Yeah, you know, it's just finding the right people. How are you overcoming that challenge? Um, we we really try to push our culture out there right we're trying to help the industry understand better um what what our ethos is. so when, you, when you're saying you're pushing your culture you're trying to get people to identify with punchbowl social and want to be a part of punchbowl want to be part of this so things like uh, like i mentioned gender equality and you know we we're you know we we are a safe place so right? you're just basically literally pushing that right into the ad now, I don't know about it. it's ad. I try to put it in my conversations, right? And when I'm talking, you know, to industry experts and, and peers, um, you know, um, we're going to do some things like um, I, I really want to find a way to be the 50% female general manager ratio in this company inside of three years. It's very difficult because there are not as many today female general managers in the marketplace. We're going to have to be willing to develop them not going to be able to develop them unless they have an interest in working for us and i think they will want to work for us if they understand that we are a people development company Mm. and we actually want to develop female talent into leaders awesome um what is one thing you look for or question you ask when you're building a team i know you don't do a lot of interviews these days but when you were how are you building your team what were you looking for yeah um you know I, i like to understand a little bit more than just um you know, um, how do you hire and fire people, right? I, I'm curious about um, how they live some of their personal life. And, um, you know, I want to understand what their hobbies and, and gotcha. activities are. There's some insight into that. I'm always also curious about how people compete. Okay. So if I can ask them, do you play a sport? Do you play chess? How do you react <laughs> when you lose? What are you looking for? <laughs> are you just looking for that edge? I'm looking for people that want to compete. Gotcha. And co- competition is not in the 100-yard dash, man. Competition is, you know... And it's not petty, like who can get to the bathroom first, you know, from, <laughs> off the bar stool. It's 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 something in the, in the nether realm between. Awesome. Uh, what is one code of conduct or behavior you teach your team? This is a core value, a way to be, a way to act. Yeah. No. Um. We won't tolerate abusiveness. Okay. Um. You know, there's no verbal abuse. Uh, it goes without saying, there's no physical abuse. <laughs> but there's um, we we're um, you know, this is not the way to lead. 
can't lead everybody the same way. Some 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 folks want to be grabbed by the nose and pulled. Um, most don't. Yeah. Um, respect is what I'm hearing from you. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what is one uncommon standard of service you teach your staff? So this is something that's common within the four walls of your business is not common within the industry service. I, 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 maybe I'll lean back on, on this moral obligation, um, you know, to, to feel ethically, um, um, satisfied, uh, or, um, complete with the transaction that you've given everything you can to the guests. We're taking their money. They work hard for their money. We owe them something. I love it. Uh, what is one book that will make us a better person or a restaurant operator? Mm. Um, th- there is um, <laughs> there is a silly, uh, you know, over capitalistic book that it, that goes beyond the, the the blanket capitalistic label called "How to Double Your Profits in Six Months or Less." <laughs> and there's really just some some good old fashioned learnings in there about. Where the where the irrelevant places to place your focus and and what actually really matters. How to world. double your profit in six, six months, months or, or less? less. All right. That sounds terrible, right? It it's like a Tony but, Robbins. Straight to the point. <laughs> you know? But uh, get past the title, read the book. Awesome. I'll have that link in the show notes. Is that on Audible? Do you know? Is that an audio? I don't know. I, I oh. I've never listened to it. Right. So I started reading it before we were uh, before <laughs> we were doing audio books everywhere. <laughs> I'll I'll find out and I'll link to both in the show notes. This is episode six hundred and fifty five. And if you are an Audible listener, use my links. It helps out. Um, what is one thing you feel restaurateurs don't do well enough or often enough? Um, I I think that. Um, I think that we're not we're not thinking about the guest uh, the guest perception enough, right? I, 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 I do think we're uh, we get caught up in our pride a lot. What is one piece of technology you've adopted within your four walls that's had a huge impact on communication, efficiency, profitability, anything along those lines that's made your business better? Esites. What's that? One more time. Esites. 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 The real estate tracking. Okay. And how are you using that? That that's the that's the, the thing that you mentioned earlier. Yeah. The, okay. the triangulates data for us. Esites. Uh, yeah. It. Um, Really, what it does, it really validates um, the the uh, intuitive conclusions, and you need you know when you're when you're talking, um, you know about tens of millions of dollars in transactions over X number of years, you need a little bit more than your intuitive conclusions to convince institutional investors to write checks. Awesome. <laughs> and this is the last question. It's a doozy, and it kind of it really resonates with you. I feel like because you've said that you want your 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 presence, your impact to kind of echo throughout the brands, right? So the question is, if you got the news, you'd be leaving this world tomorrow. All the memories of you, your work, your restaurants will be lost with your departure with the exception of three pieces of wisdom that you could leave behind for the good of humanity and for your legacy. What would those three things be that you could leave behind? Uh, Look to the horizon. One. Remember that you're dying tomorrow and act like it today. That's one, right? All one. That's two. Okay, two. Okay, <laughs> and uh, and um, you know what? Um, if you're lucky enough to have them, kiss your wife and kids before you leave the house in the morning. Awesome stuff. I have loved this conversation, Robert. You've been a great guest. We wrap up every chat by calling somebody out. So, who is one person you respect and admire in this industry? Somebody you believe would make a great guest mentor, like you've made for us today. Call them out. Be my future guest on the show. Um. Oh my goodness. Um, you know, um, I like a chef, uh, in town. We haven't talked about him in a, in a, in a while. Um, that, that I think, uh, I think he's had some, some ups and downs in his career, but he's, I think he's in the Colorado restaurant hall of fame, a guy who's mentored a lot of cooks. I don't mean chefs, 
right? Cooks, you know, chefs, chefs were cooks one day. Um, you know, a guy named Matt Selby, you know, Matt Selby. Mm-hmm. Look, I haven't even spoken to Matt in a few years, but I think, uh, I think he deserves a lot of credit for, um, the people he's developed in the kitchen, in this community. And I uh, probably didn't get enough of it. Matt, you say it's Shelby? Selby, S-E-L-B-Y. Matt Selby, look out. I'm coming after you. I'd love <laughs> to get you on the show. And let the folks at home know, um, maybe we want to come join your team. Maybe we're a young, aspiring female manager, and we want vertical development. Um, we want to come join your team. What's the best way to connect? Oh, boy. Um, yeah, we, we, uh, there are some links on our website, right, where you can reach out uh, and get in. But, um, um Look, if you're if you're a talent and you're trying to get in, um, just you know shoot me an email. My my email is robertceo@punchbowlsocial dot com. If you're a salesperson, go to hell. That's not the way to reach me. <laughs> but if if you if you find out that I got your the if you're using the email off this podcast, I will not take your call. But if you're um, if you're young and interested and and uh, and you want to get ahead um, and you know going to the restaurant hall of fame sounds like a cool thing. Um, then we want to hear from. What them. should we put in the, the subject line so you know that you recognize it? Restaurant Hall of Fame. Restaurant Hall of Fame again, <laughs> Robert. Thank you so much for taking the time to share your story, your knowledge, your mentorship. There is no questioning, my man. You are unstoppable. Cheers, bud. Cheers. All right, another episode recorded in the archive here at Restaurant Unstoppable. Robert Thompson, thank you so much for coming on the show. And a lot of great lessons from today's interview. I think the big ones, uh, some great advice on uh, branding, on uh, selecting your your location, uh, great advice on just communicating and relating to your target market and starting with that end in mind. Uh, and really, I think just a lot of inspiration in this story. Uh, Robert uh, you know, had a, a restaurant group with nine restaurants at at one point, and he he you know traded that all to open one restaurant um, that lasted thirteen months and failed uh, to put everything into something to have it fail, uh, and then to to recover with Punchbowl Social, and um, you know with that little stint in between to reconnect with what matters is guest right. I mean, I just I really loved this story. I loved. Uh, the advice that came from Robert today, and his advice just to keep your eyes on the horizon. We're gonna we're gonna come across failures. We're gonna we're going to fail in this industry, but just move forward. Look at the horizon. Keep pushing forward. Awesome stuff. And I love this mentality of uh, creating a culture of obligation to the guests. I love that. Great stuff today. Awesome. Robert Thompson, thank you so much. So, uh, guys, like always, I have to remind you, please reach out to me, Eric, at restaurantunstoppable.com. I would love to hear from you. I would love to hear who you think I should get on the show. I'm going to be in California in two weeks. So, first stop, Sacramento. Sacramento and San Francisco. I'll be bouncing back between those two areas for a few weeks, maybe longer. Uh, it all depends on how much, um, how many you know, folks we can stir up out there. So, if you can think of anybody who needs to be made an example of, please put them on my radar. Um, and you know, this, I think today's episode of recovering from failure is coming at a good time. Um, you know, August was a a rough month. August into September was a a rough time for me and I'll get into the details, but the the episode I'm publishing on Monday, um, a few days from today is going to kind of share the story of the past year at restaurant uh, unstoppable. I'm, I'm taking you behind the scenes. Um, and I'm really opening up and getting raw and authentic and, uh, vulnerable really um so make sure you check out that episode on monday and um 
yeah, awesome stuff. Can't wait for the future. Until next time, peace out.